Kia ora koutou and welcome to New Zealand Anesthesia, the podcast linking Aotearoa anaesthetists with what's going on across the motu and beyond. I'm Dr Morgan Edwards, the NZSA's president, and it is a pleasure to host our podcast. Whether you're at work, in your office, on your commute or your daily walk or run, we hope you find it an insightful and informative listen. Hello and welcome. Today we are joined by Dr Lynette McGoffrin, who is a specialist anaesthetist at Todong Hospital, and she is here to speak to us about the time that she spent in Afghanistan in 2022 with MSF. So welcome, Lynette. It's so lovely to have you. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So let's start with the basics. What did you do? Where exactly were you? And how long for? I went to Afghanistan with Medisans on Frontier, also known as Doctors Without Borders. Uh, and I worked at the Host Maternity Hospital. Uh, that's a fully MSF-run hospital in the Host province of Afghanistan, uh, which is quite close to the Pakistan border. Um, and when I was there, I was the sole medical anaesthetist. Um, I was working with a group of eight uh, Afghan national staff, uh, nurse technician anaesthetists. Um, and so my role included both providing clinical anaesthesia, but also, and probably more importantly, uh, I was uh, supporting and teaching the national staff. And that is because uh, MSF aims to eventually hand over all of their projects to be fully run by national staff. And so that's a really key function of expats when they're out on mission. Uh, so mission lengths uh, vary quite considerably, anything from a few weeks to more than a year. And that's quite dependent on the specialty and the role that you're there for, uh, the workload of that role, and whether it's an acute or a long-term uh, need that's being serviced. So for me, my mission was eight weeks long, and that's fairly typical for an anaesthetic uh, mission because it's a 24-7 nature to the job. Yeah, wow. Okay. And I mean, you've obviously got a full-time job at Todong Hospital. So what was the process like to actually getting there? Um, so there's several steps in the process of applying to uh, MSF. Um, and it's uh, not uh, a quick process. So firstly, I um, had to submit a CV with my credentials and a list of procedural competencies. And that was then reviewed by the MSF head office in Paris. And uh, they certainly do uh, read it properly because I made uh, the error of writing that I'd done zero spinals. Uh, so they did uh, contact me to clarify that. Quite an important role going to a maternity <laughs> hospital. Absolutely. Um, Anyway, once they deemed me to have the appropriate qualification and skills, I was then invited to an interview with the local office. And for New Zealanders, that's with MSF Australia and Sydney. Um, so it was conducted by teleconference in, in COVID times. Um, and this was uh, interviews about three hours long. And it covered things like my motivation, uh, alignment of my personal philosophies with MSF's philosophies, um, things like awareness about security and safety elements, uh, my family attitudes, stress awareness, coping strategies, and teamwork uh, sort of things. Um, and it was really just trying to suss out if I was a person who would fit in and cope in the field environment and if MSF was the right organisation for me. Um, at the end of that process, they 
checked my references uh, and I was then invited to participate in a three-day orientation course with MSF. Wow. Um, yeah, so that was also conducted uh, online uh, with a group of other people from uh, across Australia who would be going on missions uh, a similar time to me. Um, and that involved really learning a lot about the organisation and their history and structure, um, about what life is like in the field. And there were also a lot of group activities that we did during that time. Um, and not too long after that, I was informed that I had been successful and I was asked to give dates for when I would be available to go on mission. And then there's a bit of a matching process that goes through, looking at when you're available to what uh, projects that they have. And uh, I was then uh, made a mission offer uh, to the project in Afghanistan. And that whole process took about nine months from beginning to when I went on deployment. Um, so and then I think the second part of your question was about funding and working it around my job yeah I mean, so, how does that work were, were you were you supported by your department I mean obviously you come from a, a middle-sized department would we say in terms of the gap that you would be leaving on the roster and I imagine it's um, you know a huge part of what you're trying to navigate yeah absolutely so uh, it was um I, I did have a really supportive uh environment from both my uh, head of department and the line manager above that uh, both very much supported this type of uh, humanitarian work and felt that I would come back with skills that would be, um, you know, beneficial to the uh, department as a whole. Uh, and so uh, with that regard, they were very uh, supportive with uh, allowing me the time off. Um, and then from the actual funding process side of it, um, so MSF do uh, pay for your flights, accommodation, your pre-travel vaccinations, and you do get a small daily per diem uh, for food, for example, while you're in the field as well. Um, I personally used uh, a, a large amount of annual leave that I had accumulated during COVID times, but um, other possibilities uh, if you're working with Te Whatu Ora for this type of work and do include sabbatical um, CME funding in some cases and even uh, leave without pay, special leave options as well. Yeah, cool. I mean, it is a really big chunk of time, but it sounds like there's a couple of options that you could sort of cobble something together and specifically the sabbatical idea is a really nice one, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. What was your day-to-day -day actually like on the ground? Oh, so... Uh, morning shifts would start at 7.30 with anaesthetic handover from the uh, night team and that would be followed by a hospital handover at 8 o'clock and following that we would uh, start the inpatient ward round and there is an expectation that I would be part of that because as a dedicated uh, maternity hospital um, outside of the gynees, uh, the anaesthetists, uh, basically the only other doctors within that uh, system and we were deemed to be the uh, people with the more general uh, uh, care and knowledge uh, for the patients. So uh, on the ward rounds, I was involved in obviously post-operative pain management, as you know, just as we might be here, but also in uh, more 
management of the medical conditions and uh, some uh, yeah, complications that we might be seeing in those patients as well. And uh, outside of that, there would be uh, obviously the surgical load and the anaesthetic load that we was, were actually there for. Um, and because host, uh, maternity hospital is essentially an acute obstetric hospital, uh, all of the theatre procedures were almost exclusively urgent or emergent operations, uh, which would take place as required through the day or night. So at any time throughout the day, um, those other scheduled activities could be interrupted for um, urgent uh, procedures. Um, the only exception to that was planned tubal ligations, uh, as the only elective surgery that was performed there, and we would do uh, up to one or two of those per day, and they would usually be scheduled to follow the ward round. Um, so the day shift uh, would finish at 4.30, and after that I would be on call uh, all through the night until the next morning. And then... There's also a structure to the week in terms of the shifts. So um, on uh, during the weekdays, uh, I would be on day shift with one national staff anaesthetist. And then overnight while I was on call, there would be two national staff anaesthetists on duty. And weekends was also set up similarly. So that would be Friday and Saturday being the weekend. Uh, they would have two national staff on both day and night. And I would be on call for the entire 24 hours. And I think there was only one day during my entire mission that I did not need to go into the hospital. So it was it was quite busy in that respect, yeah. That sounds really busy. And so am I hearing correctly that there's no planned caesarean sections? That's right. Yeah, fascinating. So that when I think about how much of our workload in Aotearoa is planned caesareans for all manner of reasons, many of which are, I mean, just to pair everything back, many of which are actually for really true medical or obstetric indications um, that feels like would be catastrophic to have a vaginal birth for, but obviously that just, that whole workload um, responds in an emergency capacity instead of planned. Absolutely, and I think that's one of the um, key things about, uh, you know, that working in a very different context uh, because the uh, Afghan uh, maternity context is uh, quite different uh, to what we have here and that uh, women there will have an average of seven or eight children and that might be um, you know even up to 12 or 14 pregnancies some women were having so there's a real push to avoid uh, cesarean section uh, because, uh, you know, once you've performed one or two, um, <laughs> it's, it's fine in our society where most women are only having, you know, between one and four children. But when you're putting that into someone who's going to be a grand multip, uh, the complications of that are obviously um, exponential. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, let's chat a little bit about the technical side in terms of, you know, first of all, what anaesthetic equipment did you have? Okay, um, <laughs> very different uh, as a range of anaesthetic equipment to what I would have had back here in New Zealand. So uh, we did have an anaesthetic machine. Um, this was a Glostevent anaesthetic machine, which is quite common in uh, third world countries. It's a driver machine. Um, it uses uh, isoflurane um, and uh, also the oxygen supply is from an oxygen concentrator, uh, so you can never actually you know, truly reach 100% in 
and in fact the higher the the flows that you turn up the lower the mm. uh, concentration of oxygen that you're getting there um, suction was uh, from a portable suction device which um, I think all of us who've ever used those know that they don't uh, generate particularly powerful suction mm. um, there was uh, one capnography device between two theatres and there was absolutely no gas analysis for oxygen or volatiles at all. Um, okay. We did have routine monitoring, so non-invasive blood pressure, SATs and ECG, but there was no invasive monitoring at all. Uh, we had one syringe driver, one blood warmer, one bear hugger, but there were no uh, consumables to go with that. It would just be used with a, a sheet, for example. Um, and we did have uh, one ultrasound machine, but it was predominantly for uh, obstetric use rather than us. But of course, we could use it if there was difficult IV access, for example. Um, and our airway equipment was standard uh, MAC 3 and 4 direct laryngoscopy. Um, we had bougie stilettes, ampule bags. Um, there was no video laryngoscopy available at all. Mm. Okay, and then what about access to varying drugs outside of your volatile anaesthetic agent? <laughs> yeah, again, uh, key difference here is that we had no propofol uh, at all. So again, uh, no no TIVAs or anything possible for any you know of those elective cases or anything either. Um, what we did have was thiopentone and ketamine as induction agents. Um, the isoflurane obviously is maintenance. We interestingly, in the obstetric context, we had no nitrous oxide available. I know that's still, you know, widely used in obstetric practice for um, many of us. Um, in terms of the muscle relaxants, we had succinamethonium and atricurium, and neostigmine was our uh, reversal agent. And we had uh, a, a few uh, analgesics, so fentanyl, morphine, tramadol, and uh, some standard things like paracetamol and diclofenac. Um, and the local anaesthetics, of course, we just had uh, 0.5 bupivacaine heavy. Um, and that was always used with no, no additives at all. Uh, they were not allowed in this context because of uh, safety of follow-up care afterwards not being there um, and then the other thing was just some slight differences in the uterotonics that we had available so oxytocin was uh, routine and then we had um, methagene and misoprostol and we did uh, have tranexamic acid as well so you do an awake spinal with just heavy bupivacaine that's right yeah, um, which was uh, quite uh, a new concept to me. <laughs> uh, but what I did find is that uh, these were incredibly hemodynamically stable. It was um, uncommon for us to require any vasopressor uh, yeah. at all, whereas in practice here, um, you know, almost everybody will require a vasopressor and we'll have it running as the spinal's going in. So that was quite interesting. I certainly learned a yeah. few new things while I was there as well. Absolutely. It's quite interesting. In recent weeks, I've had a conversation with a few obstetric anaesthetists across Australia and Aotearoa talking about how they don't think you could achieve surgical conditions um, without using any adjuncts to your local anaesthetic. So clearly that is some very inaccurate musings. Um, indeed, uh, certainly um, 
one of the things that I observed and what became my pet project while I was there uh, is actually that I was observing that many of these women were actually um, having quite a lot of breakthrough pain mm. uh, during their um, caesareans. And what I discovered in my first days is that the doses that they were using were only 9 or 10 milligrams of uh, bupivacaine. Mm. And so I was able to... Uh, do some teaching around the difference between uh, like somatic and visceral pain and the levels of block needed to achieve that uh, and about the ED95 of bupivacaine for cesarean section being uh, higher than that and I was able to uh, get them to increase their dosing bet- to between 11 and 12 milligrams. Mm. Um, I was a little hesitant to do that because I wasn't sure how that was going to affect the hemodynamics and whether that was going to mean everyone was going to need a lot more vasopressor. Mm. Uh, but as as it evolved over time, that was uh, not the case. We still had very low numbers of people needing vasopressor and were able to provide much better surgical conditions. So, Yeah, I bet. Um, um, that's absolutely fascinating. And then what about in an, in an emergency? What was your emergency equipment like? So like if we think about, yeah, what was your equipment like if there was, you know, a PPH and you needed to be giving rapid volume resuscitation, if, as I think that we would be doing if we were in Aotearoa? So uh, we really didn't have any equipment uh, in terms of uh, things like um, you know, rapid infusers or anything like that at all. It's basically, uh, you can squeeze a bag <laughs> and you can put a couple of big drips in um, mm. and just the, just the one blood warmer uh, that was there. For other types of uh, emergencies, uh, you know, like cardiac, for example, uh, there was uh, no, no equipment for that. Okay, um, good. Mm. And what about blood products? Did you have access to blood products? Yes, we certainly did. Uh, Again, that was uh, something that was uh, a bit uh, different to hear. So uh, we did have a laboratory with a blood bank on site within the hospital. um, And the blood was uh, whole blood only. It was from unpaid donors. um, And it was screened for hep C, hep B and HIV. Uh, It would be typed in the laboratory just using standard reagents and then we would check um, ABO compatibility at the bedside using ABO compatibility cards, Um, like uh, with uh, patient and donor blood uh, prior to administering it. Um, And what uh, we did see is that uh, with the whole blood uh, transfusion reactions, mild transfusion reactions, uh, were, were quite uh, common and using uh, steroid and antihistamine was uh, uh, quite common when administering blood products. Yeah, wow, okay. Um, and then what about ordering lab tests? So there was obviously the ability to do cross-matching for blood. What about other tests? Uh, so... There was, uh, actually, correct you on that, no cross-matching. That was what we were doing at the bedside. Right, okay. (laughs) With our compatibility cards, yep. Fantastic. Uh, So not in the laboratory, bedside test card using uh, card-based reagents. Okay. Yep. Um, But in terms of the laboratory, Mm. uh, the... Uh, the routine things that they could do were uh, full blood count and blood grouping. Um, they could do chemical urinalysis only, 
and uh, for our eclamptic patients we were able to request uh, creatinine and liver function tests um, and that was basically the uh, capacity of our laboratory. There was no microbiology or uh, culture available. They could do some basic microscopy but that was all. Um, outside of our unit and the a wider host city, uh, there were laboratories out there that were able to do um, other tests uh, specifically if we would request them. And what was the turnaround time on those sorts of bloods? You know, I'm thinking obviously immediately of a crisis and thinking I want to be able to monitor in some with some kind of urgency. Was that mm-hmm. sort of thing available or is it actually just something that we sort of think we rely on but yeah, no. Um, so I was never actually in the position of needing to order outside bloods myself, but mm. some of the gynecologists did, for example. Um, we didn't measure HCGs, uh, which uh, might seem really strange in a uh, maternity hospital, but uh, we basically had uh, urine testing for HCG as being mm. positive or negative. And if a quantitative one was required, for example, if you are monitoring for a potential miscarriage Mm. um, then that would need to be done in the community and I believe turnaround time was the same day Uh, but uh, not not rapid if if you're wanting an emergency situation yeah and was there anything that you were missing that you really wished that you had oh apart from propofol (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, No, look, we were really fortunate in a maternity hospital that our woman tended to be young and uh, lacking in comorbidities. So they were really physiologically stable, uh, even when they were extremely unwell. Uh, So really fortunate in that resource-limited environment to have a a population uh, that required very little in the way of uh, escalated care. Excellent. Um, What was the most rewarding element? And then I guess the flip side of that is what was the most challenging? Yeah, so I think um, really it's it's the people that really make something like this. And that was across all aspects. So the patients, uh, they were just so grateful that they were able to get uh, high quality health care provided for them at no cost. Um, it was not uncommon for them to like show their gratitude by offering you their bangles or uh, their juice boxes, which is funny. Juice boxes were a, a, a highly desirable commodity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, then there were the the national staff, and they were so welcoming and just so eager to really learn and improve. And they really just want to be the best that they can be. Mm. All of their downtime they would spend studying. And they just loved it if they had the opportunity to demonstrate their knowledge to you. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah. Many of them were working towards MD qualifications. Um, so just really striving to, to be the best that they can. Mm. Um, and then amongst the expat staff, um, you know, just such a great bunch of people really made the time in the compound after, out of hours, like really enjoyable cooking and eating together and uh, playing games and just learning about each other's families and cultures because, 
you know, there were people from all over the world. There are many from African nations, um, a number from across Europe and the United Kingdom. Um, I had a, an Australian as my uh, project manager in Afghanistan as well. Um, yeah. And then the flip side of that, the difficult, probably most difficult thing um, was the language. Mm. I was going to ask um, that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, with MSF, um, all staff, whether they're expat or national staff, are required to speak the project language. Um, and for us in host, that was English. So all, all hospital staff were speaking, English speaking. But despite that, there were really uh, a lot of variation in the level of English and the fluency of it. And uh, generally very good amongst the uh, medical staff. But as you went down through uh, midwifery staff and uh, it would become much more, much more variable and difficult. Um, and of course, when this really became most difficult uh, is um, you know, as is very natural, uh, in a time of crisis, people will revert to um, their native tongue. Mm. And so at these times when I was trying most to understand what was going on would be when I would struggle the most when uh, I may be in the operating room as the only uh, expat uh, and everyone else speaking Pashto. Um, so that was that was quite uh, difficult at times. How did you find it communicating with the women? Yeah, so that was probably one of the easier aspects, uh, uh, particularly on the ward rounds, because we did have professional interpreters that were available for when we were um, talking with patients. So they would uh, attend the ward round with us um, and they would be available uh, for um, consultations um, on request, but only during daytime hours. So out of hours, we did rely on other staff, national staff, to act as interpreters for us. What motivated you to do this? I mean, humanitarian work for sure, but then motivating you to do this particular project or say yes to this particular one? <laughs> um, so in terms of doing the humanitarian work, um, I can't clearly pick a motivating factor for it, but I had seen presentations from people while I was at medical school and at conferences who'd been away with, you know, MECF or IR, um, sorry, ICRC or similar organisations, and I always thought that looked like something that I wanted to do, um, but this sort of work, it's not always compatible with the rest of your life, right? With, you know, young children, with training requirements. Um, but last year when I saw um, an advert from them, um, from MSF, it popped up on my Facebook feed of all places, uh, saying that they were recruiting anaesthetists in particular. Um, and I thought, oh, well, you know, my training years are behind me. I've got adult children now. Um, actually, this is the right time. So, um yeah, so that's that's uh, how I got onto that. Yeah. And so, did you have much of a say in where you were going? Mm. Uh, to some extent. So, um, MSF have got projects all over the world, um, but many of them focus on things like hygiene and clean water, vaccination, child nutrition. You know, a lot of public health work that they do. Um, so to work within the anaesthesia specialty, I was limited to places where they have surgical centres. 
Um, and during my initial interview, I was informed that these are usually in two categories, either trauma centres and war zones or maternity and gynae hospitals generally in West Africa. And the other thing they asked me is, is there any place that you wouldn't be prepared to go? And funnily enough, I said, Afghanistan. <laughs> and But uh, for, for some context, this was um, immediately after the fall of Kabul um, and the subsequent withdrawal of US forces. And the media was just really full of all of these horrifying images of people falling from the outsides of planes and just being truly desperate to flee the country. Um, but, you know, as I said, the process takes some time. So by the time my mission offer came through, several months had passed and the country was much more settled. And when the offer was made to me, I was also provided with really significant briefing documents for the role, the cultural context, the current security status. And after I had read through all of that, I felt really quite comfortable in deciding to accept the mission. But uh, also with that, um, if I had declined it, MSF have a policy that they don't hold that against you and they'll just make okay. you another mission offer. Okay. Um, so you could have made good on your statement of not going <laughs> to Afghanistan. That's right. <laughs> um, would you do it again if the opportunity arose? Yeah, absolutely. I do intend to participate in further humanitarian work. And I think it's really important to point out, though, that it certainly wasn't all rosy. You know, mm. there were ups and downs, um, good days and bad days. Uh, but overall, I found the experience to be a really overwhelmingly positive one. Nice. What do you feel are some of the health challenges that Afghanistan is facing where visiting international anaesthetists or other medical professionals can really make a difference? Uh, there are really just like so many mm. <laughs> challenges facing Afghan health right now. Uh, you know, the economy is in a really dire situation. There's widespread poverty. Uh, there had been flooding just before the time that I came in as well. Um, you know, just seeing like really increasing malnutrition and mental health issues. And access to antenatal care is really poor. And even with MSF, we had strict admission criteria due to overwhelming demand. So we would turn away roughly equal numbers to those that we admitted uh, at the hospital every day. But in saying that, many of them would represent later when they did meet the criteria. So we were still able to you know, capture a majority of them. Um, and then, of course, uh, gender segregation really affects women's health in particular. So female doctors are especially sought after to care for the Afghan woman. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of sort of like overall contribution that we can can have is that, you know, all of these projects aim to hand over eventually to national staff. So teaching and especially teaching of practices that are sustainable in that context is one of the most vital contributions that uh, we can make. And did you encounter any cases that you had never experienced before? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so so to, to a really great extent, uh, an Afghan woman's, woman's value is measured sort of in her ability to have babies, so in her fertility. So fertility medications are really widely used in the community, and this results in more multiple births than I have ever seen. Um, we, we would have several sets of twins being born a day. Um, there's once we had two lots of triplets delivering at the same time, and we even had quadruplets. 
Um, and I also saw something very rare, uh, a heterotopic pregnancy, where there is actually an ectopic on the left ovary at the same time as an interuterine pregnancy. Um, and uh, there were quite a few cases of things like severe spina bifida and hydrocephalus due to that lack of antenatal screening and care as well. Um, but from the anaesthetic uh, perspective, it was just really the sheer number of eclamptics that we treated. Yeah. So in my practice here, I've obviously been exposed to uh, a lot of pre-eclampsia, mm -hmm. but actually seeing eclampsia uh, uh, is um, you know, not something that we see so much here. And we would often have very young girls that be brought in having seizures in the back of a car. Um, and sometimes they've been going on for hours or even days. And a real cultural thing is that most Afghans, they don't recognize seizures as a medical problem. They're thought to be a spiritual problem where um, a jinn has possessed the person's body. And so there was one girl I remember well, she actually had burns to her fingers and around her mouth because she'd been taken to a local mula who'd performed a, a type of, um, I guess what we would call an exorcism sort of um, procedure. Um, and so, yeah, we would have uh, quite a few of these patients and after we treated them and uh, they had surgical delivery, we would keep them in our recovery area for um, up to 48 hours for one-on-one -on -one care. That was what doubled as an HDU ICU for mm. us. Yeah, how absolutely fascinating because you're right, we incredibly rarely, apart from in scenarios usually um, with people with you know, poor engagement with the healthcare system or, you know, from really, you know, impoverished backgrounds. Outside of those situations, we very rarely see anything aside from early identified and early managed preeclampsia. How did you find it working with an international and also local team that you'd never worked with before? Um... In many ways, it was just like turning up to your first day of work in a new hospital, you know, lots of introductions and getting to know people. Um, but obviously, the language is a key difference that I've already spoken to. Um, another big difference was uh, training and expectations across all roles. So I had never worked with nurse technician anesthesia providers before, and so getting to know their individual knowledge and their skill sets was really important in working out how to best support their practice. Um, and likewise, some of the differences in medical training globally um, was um, quite obvious, you know, amongst the expat staff. So, for example, um, the European gynaecologists, they exit medical school directly to specialist training. So they had, um, you know, with, with not really general medical sort of backgrounds. And so um, they had, would often have quite limited ability to assess and treat their patients more general medical conditions. And so in a maternity hospital where you, you know, stand alone and there's no, you know, gen med available to mm -hmm. refer to, um, it was, you know, quite an important difference to understand and manage. Mm. Yeah, and I think that perhaps North America or the United States is a similar process as well, isn't it? Whereas we That's right, do absolutely. spend time. 
Mm. And in fact, um, it was it was that key difference that uh, had myself nominated uh, as uh, part of my role was also outside of anaesthesia. I was staff physician uh, for the hospital as well, being the person with the most general medical training. Um, so I was also managing uh, generally very minor conditions amongst the staff, things like uh, nasal vestibulitis and a sty in the eye, uh, of course, gastroenteritis. Um, and uh, COVID amongst staff members. And even in the middle of the night, one night I was called for a, a suspected uh, MI and a staff member in the hospital, one of the cleaners, but uh, fortunately it turned out to be uh, just a bit of indigestion. <laughs> fortunately, because it doesn't sound like there was a lot of emergency <laughs> equipment around. <laughs> we were able to do an ECG. Good. <laughs> that's, that's very, very useful. Yeah. Um, yeah. How did people at work or your whanau, your friends, react when you said that you were going to Afghanistan? Oh, okay. So the person I was most nervous about telling was my mum. Mm -hmm. um, but I really needn't have been because she was actually really excited that I'd be doing this type of work. And then uh, I have uh, two sons aged in their 20s, and one of them just sort of shrugged and went, oh, yeah. Um, and the other one was like, Oh, I'm going to worry about you, Mum. Please don't die. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, very different responses from the two of them, but in fitting with their personalities as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, people at work uh, mostly uh, would say I was brave. You're very brave. Yes, um, I would echo but that. But I think that was a euphemism for uh, you're very crazy. <laughs> 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 um, but really... Um, with the excellent safety and security briefing I was given by MSCF, I was able to reassure people that while, you know, you can never exclude risk, I was comfortable with the minimisation policies and procedures that they had. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, obviously I've never done anything like this, but when I, when I think about doing things that are perhaps perceived by people in Aotearoa as being risky, when we think about the, the broader world, it's often a, a lack of understanding rather than an actual real risk. That's right. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And do you have, as a final question, do you have advice <laughs> for those who are considering going down this path? Um, so i just say there are lots of humanitarian organisations out there. Um, so find one that aligns with your own values um, and when going into another country, absolutely just respect the cultural requirements, obey all the procedures because it's not just about keeping yourself safe, it's about keeping your whole organisation safe and protecting their reputation in that country as well. Um, and be prepared to just be really flexible with your work uh, with very limited resources. And on a more personal note, like know what you do to relieve stress and make sure that you can do it in the field. Or if you can't, then work on an alternative. Um, yeah. And just to think, you can't save everyone. You can't change the world in one mission. But um, be, so be realistic about what you can achieve and just enjoy it. Have a good time. That's really, really insightful. Um, and I think especially the advice around stress management because mm -hmm. I imagine that it's at times isolating and lonely being away from Aotearoa and Fano, and then thinking about the ways that we would normally 
cope with things. I know that you and I are both quite similar in getting a lot of joy out of forest bathing or outdoor adventures um, and thinking about how to find something to be similar or something to fill that need, but in a completely different environment. That's right. And uh, in that respect, um, I was really fortunate that although I couldn't get outdoors or, or leave the compound while I was there, um, MSF really recognises that need for people. And so they we did have a gym on site, um, a, a small room of uh, some mostly fairly old and donated equipment, but there were a couple <laughs> of treadmills and a weight machine and a rowing machine. So yeah, cool. um, while I couldn't, uh, you know, go for a run in the bush, I could certainly pound the treadmill for a, for a while. And uh, I'd also like to say that there was a r really quite robust internet connection. So I was able to uh, touch base uh, with friends and family back home over secure connections. Um, so that was really important as well. Yeah, that, that would be really key. Um, Lynette, thank you so much for your time today. It's incredibly inspirational, so much food for thought and um, just so humbled by the amazing things that you've done. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for coming and chatting to us about it. Thank you for having me. And thank you listeners for tuning in to our first podcast of 2023. We really look forward to seeing you again soon. Kakite anō.